WCNC Charlotte. This is Flashpoint. Thanks for joining us here on Flashpoint. I'm Ben Thompson. Today is the start of National Mental Illness Awareness Week. It's a big issue not only here in Charlotte, but across North Carolina. Data from the National Alliance on Mental Illness says more than 1.4 million adults living in the Tar Heel State have a mental health condition. For a quarter of those folks, their illness is considered to be serious. A little bit later, we'll hear from state health officials about how they plan to address suicide here in North Carolina. But first, we're speaking with CMPD about some of their work to help de-escalate situations involving community members with behavioral health issues. Joining us now, CMPD Lieutenant Joan Gallant, who heads CMPD's Community Wellness Division. Lieutenant, welcome to Flashpoint. We appreciate you taking the time. Absolutely, I'm happy to be here. All right, explain to me, your, your team has been around for a few years. You've been a part of it for the past year or so. Why is it an important mission that a lot of folks, people might not be the first to think about when it comes to um, being involved in the community and making sure things are okay before they reach, say, a, a criminal level that people often associate with police? Sure, so uh, CMPD has a unit called CPCRT, which is Community Policing Crisis Response Team. and. Uh, we've been around since 2019 and the unit was formed when we recognized a need in the community um, through calls for service uh, essentially we we identified that we had uh, close to a thousand calls for service prior to 2019 where folks were experiencing a variety of mental health crises and that can include things like substance abuse or any other number of situational crises um, just based on different needs of the community. And we wanted to respond to that need, making sure that we were connecting people to the right places so that they didn't have to be involved in the criminal justice system and they didn't have to go seek assistance through an emergency room or um, some of the other more common uh, areas that, that folks were really finding that they had to go in order to get some of these services that they needed. Okay, explain to us what a call for you is different like than say, uh, a call that people think about in a, in a more uh, traditional fashion as far as a call comes in to 911, somebody's been hurt or shot or something like that, and we have police officers go to the scene. You're responding to something differently. Explain that to us. Sure. So we respond to any host of calls for service related to persons experiencing a crisis, and that crisis can be anything. It can be mental health, substance abuse, homelessness, situational. And when I say situational, somebody could just be they could have just lost their job they could be experiencing grief um, and those things where they just they don't know who else to turn to and so it's easy to call 911 because it's an easy everybody knows the number and they know that we're going to respond and we're going to get folks the help that they need so we respond secondarily to patrol patrol will go um, because there is always a safety aspect that needs to be um we have to be mindful of because we have mental health clinicians in the car with us um so we will respond secondarily to patrol who's evaluated a scene, ensured that it's safe, and then have identified that the person that they're interacting with really could benefit from some more wraparound services and some closer attention. Um, and so that's how we will respond. And then it allows the patrol officer to go back to answer calls for service that are more uh, related to what their goals and their mission is every day. For example, answering the car break-in calls or the house break-in calls or the other types of criminal events and then we will take over and get folks connected to the different types of services that they may need. You mentioned wraparound services, and I think that sort of brings me to this next question, that in the last few years in our country, we've talked about 
the role of police and whether or not we want to defund them or anything like that. But I feel like what you're describing is sort of a response to that, as in a, a more nuanced approach to where um, police might not always be a solution to the problem we're seeking, but in a lot of ways, police can be helpful. And if it's not a patrolman, it can be something like this, where they're going in, talking mental health, have experts there at the ready, and addressing some of these issues in a non-confrontational way. Exactly. It really allows us the opportunity to provide um, humane and compassionate and professional services to folks, ensuring that we're giving um, the, the best police services that we can. And police services include any host of things, not just answering a call that is regarding a crime. You know, we're, we are the helpers. And um, folks call us because they need something and they don't know where else to turn. And we recognize that it's, it's easy for folks to say, well, you know, that's not a police activity or so on and so forth, but our community needs us to be able to get them sometimes just pointed in the right direction. And that's really what this is intended to do is to provide all of those different needs um, to our community members, meeting them where they are with, with what they have and not expecting them to bend to us. Um, it's important that we acknowledge what our community needs and that we give them what they need and what they expect. And people, um, we, we know that they expect us to help them in whatever way that might look. Uh, and maybe this would be a, a better question for the chief, but but I have you here, so I'll ask you. Um, how do you think this has been received within the department and within the community? Is this could perceived to be a, a, a wide success? Absolutely. Um, number one, I think first and foremost, having a unit like this helps everybody, both the police department and the community, start to understand and dispel the stigma related to mental health. Um, this is a difficult topic for many people to, to discuss, to face, to address. And when we're willing to approach topics that are difficult for everybody else, then I think that helps um, all of us uh, internally and the community uh, really develop a comfort level with addressing the topic in and of itself. Um, you know, we have success-wise, we have answered since the unit was uh, created in 2019, more than 7,000 calls for service. Uh, year to date, we are well over a thousand calls for service where folks are are calling for things. We are identifying the needs and and being able to respond appropriately. Um, so it's absolutely a success and the benefits that have come from it, you know, help teach the police officers better skills, um, helps help officers understand the different needs of the community that they're serving, helps the community understand that we want to be here um, to get folks assistance, help, and resources that they need, and that we recognize that folks are going to call us because we're the ones that, you know, at the end of the day, when something is is just so, uh, so difficult for them that they need somebody to help them, they know that they can always count on us to, to be there for them. And I assume, like pretty much every field in this country, you, you've been affected by the labor shortage. Is, is that in case the fact for you? As far as the police department is concerned, yes, we we your recruiting is a challenge for us right now, as it is across the country. And any time that we have, uh, you know, vacancies and staffing shortages, then that impacts service delivery. Whereas maybe we may not be able to add more officers to our unit. Maybe we can't expand the hours that we're available 
because of some of these staffing challenges. You know, we have a, a lot of responsibilities and we're trying to, to be mindful of all of them. Um, and yes, uh, of course, staffing shortages do create um, challenges for us, but they aren't something that we aren't willing to try to overcome. Uh, it's important that we're creative so that we can make sure that we're delivering the services that the community expects us to deliver. So then the logical final question here is, given the success you all have had, uh, given the fact that you seem to be uh, quite effective in, in responding in a more nuanced way to community members in need, but given the fact that you are also part of a police department that is seeing this shortage um, in staffing, like so many other workplaces across the country, how do you expand what seems to be a, a otherwise thriving um, department within CMPD? So I will tell you, we did expand at the end of last year. We doubled the unit. Um, so we went from 12 te six teams to 12 teams at the end of 2021. So that should tell you right there that even though we have challenges, we are still expanding where we've identified a need. We will continue to evaluate and um, expand appropriately as best we can with with uh, the the what we have available at the time. All right, Lieutenant, thanks so much for coming on and taking time and thank you for what you do for our community every single day. Thank you very much. All right, more Flashpoint after this. Welcome back to a special edition of Flashpoint focusing on mental health here in the Carolinas. An unfortunate reality of mental illness is that it can be deadly. In fact, suicide among the top five leading causes of death for folks between the ages of 10 and 65. Now North Carolina state health officials are releasing a plan to lower those numbers. Joining us now, the program coordinator for North Carolina's suicide prevention um, program, it's Ann Geisinger. Ann, thanks for coming on, we appreciate it. Thank you so much. Um, so the health department releasing this new sort of coordinated plan to help address mental health in the Carolinas. Um, what do you think needs to happen to reduce the number of suicides that we're seeing? And that's a great question. Um, in fact, this coordinated state action plan is directly addressing that. Uh, we are aiming to reduce injury and death by suicide. And in order to do that, you can't, you don't, don't have just one way to do it. You have to have multiple ways to do it. So this plan um, provides a variety of strategies, both you know at, at the community level, at the policy level, to address suicide and to help prevent the injury and death that results from suicide. Why are we, I know this is a complicated question that requires a complicated answer, but, but why are we seeing the numbers we're seeing right now? This is an excellent question. I mean, suicide is one of the leading causes of death. Um, over the last 10 years, suicide deaths in North Carolina have risen by an alarming 26%. Um, and perhaps even more concerning is the 48% rise among youth ages 10 to 18. Um, so this is all happening in a world in which things are shifting rapidly. And of course, we've all been living in a pandemic. Um, so multiple variables have contributed to the increase in suicide death over the last 10 years. The important point is that we are recognizing this trend and we are taking method, um, steps to counter it. Uh, we talked about this coordinated plan. What all does it include? Um, and why do we think this will help? Great question. So this plan includes, um, how, how do I put it? Uh, it includes a variety of um, 
I'm losing track of things. It includes a variety of steps from various divisions. So we have the division of public health uh, reaching out to, for example, faith leaders and veterans that aren't in the VA system to work with them on suicide prevention. Meanwhile, we have the division of mental health that has crisis intervention teams. So they have a, a very different approach, but incredibly important. And we have the VA that's working with their veterans directly. So we have all these different divisions and groups and partners that have different methods and different approaches that are all valid. But being able to coordinate those efforts is key in basically exponentially growing the effect that we can have in suicide prevention in North Carolina. Uh, you, you talk about what, what the, the state can do and what, what governments can do. But what about us as, as everyday citizens? What can we do? How can we empower ourselves to go out there and help our neighbors and, and our friends and, and family members in need? That's a great question. So there is um, there is a type of training called gatekeeper training. And gatekeeper training is teaching people to kind of put your radar up and identify when somebody is feeling a little out of kilter. And then how do you use your voice? What words do you, do you use to approach that person and say, are you all right? Are you thinking of suicide? So empowering people to use those words, to ask people how they're doing, um, that's what we as individuals can do. And we can also work with our schools, work with our faith communities, work with our businesses to elevate suicide prevention training. In many places, hospitals and many work sites, there's CPR. Uh, we know how to do CPR. If you see somebody's heart is struggling, you know how to do the um, compressions to help maintain them until they can get to help. That's what suicide prevention training is. It's not making you, you know, the, uh, the person that is um, the therapist or the counselor, but it's allowing you to identify somebody that is struggling and help get them to, to help. Um, and I would like to also uh, mention the 988, our crisis line, lifeline and crisis line, that um, you should promote it to friends and family, put it in your phone. So if you see somebody in crisis, you can simply ask, should we call them? Would you like to talk to somebody? These are things that we can do as individuals with family, friends, colleagues, people in our community to keep each other safe. And for anybody out there struggling, I think it's important to say and important to arm them with the best information. What is the, the best way someone can get help right now? I would say calling 988. And there are also resources online at the Division of Health and Human Services. Um, reaching out, there are people out there to help. There are people, programs, and training. But 988 is a great way to start. Okay. Ann Geisinger with the North Carolina Suicide Prevention Program. And thanks for coming on and talking to us about a, a really important topic that we don't talk about enough. Thank you so much for giving us the time and space to have this great conversation. All right, Ann, thanks. What Thank you. Point after this. Welcome back to Flashpoint. Amid the recent mass shootings across the country, many are debating gun control and stronger safety measures, but others are pointing to the nation's mental health crisis as the root of some of these deadly attacks. WCNC Shroud's Jesse Pierre found out why some say Pairing mental health with mass shootings does more harm than good. 
Mental health advocates say it is harmful to link gun violence to mental health illnesses because doing so creates a stigma for those who live with mental illness. They say it also diverts the spotlight from the larger issue of gun violence and mass shootings in the country. Anytime there's a mass shooting, the first thing that people say is, oh, that person is crazy. Fonda Bryant, a mental health advocate, is pushing back at claims that the country's mental health crisis is to blame for the tragic mass shootings happening across the country. It's going to fuel self-medicating because people are going to self-medicate instead of go get help. And also it's going to fuel the suicide rates. Studies found that less than 5% of violence in the U.S. can be attributed to mental illness. That's according to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. People with mental health conditions are more likely to be victims of violence than perpetrators of violence. Bryant says it's important to recognize that millions of people across the globe experience mental illness and urges lawmakers to focus on stricter gun policies. I'd like to see them get rid of the AR-15s. Why do we need a gun that can do so much damage? North Carolina Senator Natasha Marcus supports mental health care, but says access to guns is the biggest factor in mass shootings. We have to face the facts that America has too many guns, too many uh, large capacity magazines, um, and too much anger and hatred um, to, to solve it with just more mental health dollars. Bryant says she will continue to fight to break down the walls and stigmas associated with mental illness. We're not violent, we just are in pain, and our disease is in a different place than in our heart, and our lungs, it just happens to be in the brain. It's a battle she takes on every day. Jesse Pierre, WCNC Charlotte. The mental health crisis, especially acute in South Carolina. A closer look at that up next. Welcome back to Flashpoint. In just the past few months, there is a, a new three-digit telephone number helping anybody in crisis, 988 is a nationwide number that can connect you to the nationwide suicide hotline. Since it launched back in July, South Carolina's only suicide call center has worked to keep up with the demand. As Becky Buds reports, more state funding could be on the way. Getting help during a mental health crisis is now as easy as dialing 988. The new three-digit number replaced a longer 1-800 number tied to the Suicide Prevention Lifeline. And South Carolina's only call center is working around the clock to answer the influx of callers. We want to blast the 988 number all over, um, but we also want to be responsible. Kathy Eckert is the Director of Crisis Intervention Services at Mental Health of America in Greenville. She says calls increased 101% in the week after the hotline's July 16th launch. Overall, calls are up 65% from last year. The center is answering 75% of them, but the goal is 100%. We know our resources better than anybody else. We know policies and procedures in the state better than out of the state. Eckert explains the center is surviving off grants and donations and is in need of a steady source of funding. If we had the funding, we would like to hire probably at least 10 full-time people. State lawmakers and agency leaders got an update on what the call center is facing. They've already approved $1.3 million in this year's budget for a second call center in Charleston that's expected to be online early next year. The State Department of Mental Health is asking for more money in next year's budget to fund someone to answer the call, someone to respond, and a safe place to go for care. Uh, 988 and our mobile crisis teams 
and our efforts for suicide prevention, we're looking for $11 million. Efforts people like Miranda Beaver, who lost her uncle to suicide in 2013, supports. I hope that one day we can talk openly about suicide without stigma and that everyone will understand the importance of this cause. Becky Bud's reporting for us there. South Carolina has mobile crisis units in all 46 counties. In South Carolina, the latest numbers show one in five South Carolinians will experience mental illness each year. 53,000 teens aged 12 to 17 in South Carolina live with depression. And folks, remember, if you or a loved one is in need of emergency mental health counseling, all it takes is dialing the three numbers we mentioned before, 988. There is help out there for anybody in need. Folks, before we end the program, come interact with us on social media. Let us know if there's something else that you'd like for us to talk about. For example, today, didn't talk politics, but instead talked about a pressing social issue. And we'll see you back here next week for another edition of Flashpoint.